that you're here, and I hope you have your Old Testament with you. If not, perhaps there's one in a few close to you. We are continuing a study of Isaiah as we're working through the major prophets in a rather quick fashion. And we're looking at the book of Isaiah in four sections. And we're ready for the third of those four. It is a quick pace. It is at a very rapid pace of looking through that. But one of the things that's being accomplished, hopefully, for you, is, at least it is for me, is I'm seeing the book in a close setting in the sense that if we take 15 or 20 weeks in studying the book of Isaiah, by the time you get to chapters 48 to 66, or 40 to 66, you've forgotten what chapters 1 through 12 were about. And this way we perhaps see the, the close connection with them all. And so we're going to look at chapters 40 to 48, a little less than we've been studying in some of the others, and we'll go back and finish up the rest of the book next time. This is our outline of the book of Isaiah, adapted from Haley and Wiersbe and others. And there are two major sections. We finish the first. That has to do with judgment from God, the Assyrian period. Assyria was the threat during that time. And we're ready to pick up with chapter 40, and we're going to focus on 40 to 48. In the first lesson, we looked at the 20, first 23 chapters. And then we went down through chapter 39 in our second study. And now we're ready to look at chapters 40 to 48, deliverance from Babylonian captivity. But what I want us to see is chapters 40 to 66 deals with comfort from God, hope for troublesome times, and a remnant returns. And so there are three things that are going to happen in this section. There's deliverance from Babylonian captivity. There is the suffering servant. That's messianic. That is, deals with the Messiah. And then there's the future glory that carries us through the end of the book in chapter 66. We'll tie all of those together as we come to those. But we're going to focus on 40 to 48. I remind you that chapters 1 through 39, as we just saw in our outline, deals with the Assyrian threat. And so we've been talking about Assyria being the threat. Well, this prophet is prophesying to Judah. Judah is not going to go into Assyrian captivity. They thought they were. And that was the point of chapters 1 to 39, is that as Israel, the northern kingdom, goes into captivity, they think they're going to be taken as well. And so if they perhaps are going to be taken, they need to look for some help somewhere else rather than God. So they were looking for alliance with Egypt. And that's what chapters 1 to 39 were about. Well, in chapters 40 to 48, it deals with the Babylonian threat. Now, Babylon hasn't rose in power yet, but he's telling them you're going to go into Babylonian captivity. And then he talks about the end of the Babylonian captivity, deliverance therefrom. And that's what we're going to see in our chapters tonight. So what's the point of chapters 40 to 48? The major point is deliverance from Babylonian captivity. Now, the captivity had just been mentioned. So if you have your Bible open to Isaiah 40, back up to chapter 39. Chapter 39 ended in this historical note concerning Hezekiah. Hezekiah had displayed his wealth before the Babylonians who had come. as They had sent an envoy, and he displayed that, and he was rebuked by Isaiah. And Isaiah told him, what did they see, or ask him, what have they seen in your house? Well, I showed them all my goods. And he said to them at verse 6 that this is all going to be carried to Babylon and your descendants also. So there was a prophecy of Babylonian captivity. Babylon hasn't rose in power yet. But this is the power of prophecy. That indeed, Babylon is going to rise and the southern kingdom is going to go into Babylonian captivity. Having mentioned that now, chapters 40 to 48 primarily focus, though that's not the only thing, 
primarily focuses on deliverance from Babylonian captivity. Now, Jeremiah will tell us later how long this will last. That's not told here in the book of Isaiah. That's told to us in the book of Jeremiah. So let's talk about this deliverance from Babylonian captivity, 40 to 48. Now, chapter 40 has a look at the greatness of God to comfort his people. And so the first thing that he does in verses 1 through 11 is that comfort was needed. Why is there comfort needed? They're going into captivity. There is a need for comfort for a nation that's going to go into captivity. So he says at verse 1 of chapter 40, Comfort, yes, comfort my people. There is indeed comfort that is needed. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry to her. Now there are three things that are mentioned in verse 2 that you might want to underline because this is going to summarize what we have seen already. That her warfare is ended. That's number one. We're going to come back to these. Her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, let's back up to our, our outline that we, uh, that we have, that we've been looking at. Um, back up to our outline, if I can find my remote. And... Uh, what I want to see in this outline is there are three points that are to be made in chapters 40 to 66. And that's what he just outlined for us in verse 2. So let's go back and see if we, we have this in verse 2. Cry out comfort to Jerusalem. What are you going to cry out to Jerusalem? Warfare is ended. That's 40 to 48. What he's going to be talking about in 40 to 48. Iniquity is pardoned. That's the suffering servant, 49 to 57. And then there is this receiving double for her sins. That is, there's a balance in the scales. She has received punishment that's going to be balanced with deliverance and salvation that's going to be discussed now in 58 to 66. So he's just outlined for us the rest of the message found in the book of Isaiah for what that may be worth to us. So let's go back now to chapter 40, verses 1 and 2 as he talks about this comfort that is to be given. God speaks comfort to Jerusalem. Now, as he often does in the book of Isaiah and many of the other prophets, he talks about the present and then laces in with that a reference to the future and brighter days in the Messiah. And so he does that here beginning at chapter uh, 40, verses 3 through 11. There are greater days in the Messiah. So what do we see in the greater days in the Messiah? Well, notice he talks in verses 3 and 4 that he's going to have a forerunner. You recognize that was a prophecy of John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The New Testament tells us in Matthew 3 that had reference to John the Baptist. So this is messianic here in this section concerning better days under the Messiah. Well, then he talks about the nations, all flesh, you're going to see his glory, verse 5. So in the days of the Messiah, even the Gentiles will come in, all flesh will see it together. Come back to verses, uh, well, verses 6 to 9 talks about glad tidings are going to be proclaimed to the nations. And then he tells us that God will give protection and care to his flock or to his people, verses 10 and 11. But I want to go back to 6 and 7. All flesh is as grass, and all of its loveliness is like the flower of, a gla the, uh, of the grass, of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. Now, that's quoted in 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, in the New Testament. But the point of that is not really concerning, as we often quote it in the context, uh, that mankind dies, we will die, and so your, your flesh is going to die, and so there's coming an end to your life. It's really talking about the end of nations in this context. And so just as the flower blooms and it, it, it's here and it's gone, nations come and go. 
And so the same thing is true concerning Babylon. It was true concerning Assyria, true concerning Israel, concerning Judah, and it'll be true even concerning our own nation. Nations are like flowers that bloom and blossom and then their, their, their glory fades. It's gone. That's the point in verses 6 through 9. Now let's go to uh, the rest of chapter uh, 40, and he talks about the great and the mighty God, verses 12 to 31. That is, this deliverance that's going to come from, um, from Babylonian captivity is accomplished by a great and a mighty God, the greatness of God. Now, he is viewed from a number of standpoints, so this is very practical. If you, you say, I'm getting lost with the message of Isaiah, there's going to be glimpses of messages that are going to make great sense to you, and this is one of those wherein we have the great and the mighty God, how great and magnificent he is. This is the God that we serve and that we worship. So let's run through some of these. Verses 12 to 14, God in comparison to the world that he created. So notice at verse 12, he measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. He measures the heavens in a span. He calculates the dust of the earth in a measure. Uh, look at verse, um, verse 14. He says, with whom uh, did he take counsel? And who instructed him? In other words, who's wise enough to give instruction to God who can measure the, the world in, in, his, in the palm of his hand? That's the point. Compared to the world that he created, he is a great and a magnificent God. Now let's talk about the nations, beginning at verse 15. That the nations are compared as a drop of the bucket. You hear us use that expression quite frequently. That God is compared, the nation is compared to, a whole nation is compared to God as a drop of a bucket. It's the picture of taking a bucket and dropping it into the water and pulling it up, and as you carry the bucket back to the house, you're concerned about the greater content, and you're not worried about that single drop that fell off the bottom of the bucket. God views whole nations like Babylon as an insignificant drop of a bucket. Uh, same thing with Assyria. Same thing with any other nation that may fall. That's how God views them. Well, let's go further to verses 18 to 20. Let's compare him to idols. And so how shall we liken him? Well, he talks about a workman molds an image, and... Uh, the goldsmith uh, covers it with gold and he casts it with silver. So here's man making his gods. And if he's too poor to afford the gold god or the silver god, look at verse 20. If he's too impoverished for such a, a contribution, he chooses a tree uh, that will not rot. He seeks out some of the better wood that he can find in the forest. And he makes for himself, finds a skillful uh, workman and he makes for him a, a carved image that will not totter. That is, he tries to fix it so it won't fall over. So in comparison to the gods, the idols, he is the great and he's the mighty God. Look at verses 21 to 24. That's comparing to the mighty of the earth. That's the, the strong of the earth. Perhaps leaders that are in the earth. That is uh, powerful leaders like Nebuchadnezzar later on, Cyrus a little bit later on, or uh, Sennacherib, as we've been talking about in chapters 1 to 39. Uh, notice that he sits on the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And he stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And so what I'm learning from that is that God views all of these leaders as insignificant like a grasshopper that you see walking across the grass. Scarcely they shall be planted, scarcely they shall be th uh, sown, but notice the end of verse 34, uh, 24 I'm reading, the whirlwind will uh, wash them away or blow them away like stubble. So God can take leaders down like stubble. He can do that. He can blow them away. Now let's talk about how he controls the stars, verses 25 and 26. Verse 26, lift up the eyes and you'll see that he created these. He even calls them by name. How many stars are they? Are there? Well, you don't know. Even the scientists don't know. God knows exactly how many, and he's named every single one of them. Uh, there are things where you can spend some money in the uh, 
uh, NASA will let you name a star. Well, God already has a name for that star. And he's named every single one of them. He knows them all by name, meaning by that he can identify every star. Now, notice in verse 27 to 31, he is the source of all power. Now, this here's where he gets to the point of why does he talk about the power of God and how great he is. Look at verse 27. He said, why should you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? What's he talking about? Well, don't think that God is forgetting you when you're in captivity. Don't think God has forgotten about you when it seems like you've been off in captivity for a while and you've been praying and you're praying and there's been no deliverance come. God hadn't forgotten you. He hadn't forgotten you at all. So notice verse 31. This is a verse we've all memorized, or at least a portion thereof. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. What's he saying? That those who serve God and faithful to God get their strength from God. So they shall mount up with wings like eagles in other words, God's going to lift them up and he's going to deliver them from this captivity. So a look at the greatness of God serves as a comfort that he's cried out for in verse 1. Now let's go to verse 41. Here is a challenge now. We're still talking about deliverance from Babylonian captivity. That's the overriding principle here. And that is, God can foretell the future, but can the gods of the nation? We just saw the great God of chapter 40. He has the power to foretell the future. And so can, can he, and he foretells the rise of Babylon, and he's foretelling the rise of the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. We're going to see that at the end of chapter 44 and the beginning of chapter 45. So can the gods do that? Well, let's see what we have in chapter 41. Uh, there is an announcement to the nations that one is going to rise from the east. If you're so disposed to make marginal notes, um, you might make a note here at verse 2. And then later at verse 25, uh, it almost seems like a contradiction, and we'll, de we'll de define that's not a contradiction in a moment. Um, but keep silence. Let's, let's go at verse, uh, verse 1 first. Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. And so here is an announcement for the nations to come. And what's he say to the nations? Who raised up one from the east. That's a reference to Cyrus, if you want to make a marginal note. Cyrus the Mede. Now, we're a number of years away from this, about 150 years before he rises in power. But his point is about deliverance from Babylonian captivity. How is this going to be accomplished? It's going to be accomplished through Cyrus the Mede. God's going to identify him by name later. And you say, how do you know that was his name? Chapter 44 tells me. Chapter 45 tells me that. But we'll get to that in just a moment. But he rises from the east. Now, he rises from the east because Persia was from the east. But later it's going to be said to be from the north. And we'll talk about why that's the case in just a moment. So God tells the nations to come and, uh, to, the, to the judgment. Notice it, verse uh, 2 through 4. Who, who is the one that raises up the one from the east? In other words, who raises up Cyrus to accomplish this? Look at verse 4. I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am he. God said, I'm the one that does that. So what he's saying is that Cyrus, the Mede, Cyrus, the Persian, uh, the Persian leader, the Medo-Persian leader, is nothing but a tool in the hand of God. That's what nations are. That's what leaders are. They're tools in the hand of God. And that's what God's doing with leaders. God can use any leader, the leaders of our own nation, as tools. He may be using it as a tool for good, or it may be God uses a leader for a tool to bring a nation down. And that happens at times. But anyway, he's a tool in the hand of God. Now notice the reaction of the nations. Now, when the nations begin to see Cyrus rise in power, he's not even, he's not even born now. He, Cyrus has not even been born yet. 
But when he rises in power, when Cyrus does, notice now, God tells uh, them at verses, well, let's get to verses 6 and 7 before we go to verse 8, that the nations are going to fear. Verse 6, everyone is going to say to his neighbor, they're going to be afraid, verse 5, the ends of the earth, will, uh, the, the coastland saw it and feared, and the ends of the earth were afraid. So they, they, they're terrified because of the rise of Cyrus. Now, this is almost funny in verse 7. The craftsmen encouraged the goldsmith. In other words, let's start making our God stronger. And the one that smooths the, the, the metal with, hammer, uh, with, uh, with a hammer, he says, saying, it is ready for the soldering, and he fastens it with pegs that it may not totter. They try to strengthen their gods. See, their gods would fall over often. And uh, so we want to make sure he's anchored well. We want to make sure he sets up well, because we're going to need this God to deliver us from Cyrus. Uh, and so in the fear, they start strengthening their gods, and they call the, the goldsmith in, and the, the iron worker in, and the... the uh, the wooden worker to come in and let's do what we can to strengthen and make our gods even better. Now, beginning at verse eight, God tells his people not to fear. The nations are going to fear, but you don't need to fear when Cyrus rises in power. Why do you not need to fear? Well, look at verse 10, verse eight. But Israel, my servant, you are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. You're my people. That's one reason you don't need to fear. Fear not, verse 10, for I am with you. God said, I'm going to be with you so you are my servants. Now notice he says that the, the, the Lord causes his enemies to be dismayed. So when, when Babylon is in power, and God is through with Babylon, the enemies of God are going to indeed be dismayed. So notice what he says at verse 11. Behold, those who are incensed against you, that's Babylon, shall be ashamed, shall be as nothing, and they shall perish. Look at verse end of verse uh, 12. They shall be as nothing. Now at verses 14 through 20, or 16, the Lord's going to make his people strong. Now notice the wording that he is. It says, fear not at verse, verse 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob. Now that sounds kind of derogatory, doesn't it? But God refers to Jacob as a worm, suggesting the weakness of Jacob. But here's what God's going to do with Jacob. They are weak when they're in Babylonian captivity. But notice at verse 15, I'm going to make you into a threshing sledge with sharp teeth. What is that referring to? Deliverance from Babylonian captivity. That's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to deliver you from Babylonian captivity. Now notice beginning at verse 17, the Lord will redeem his people. The, uh, when the poor and the needy uh, are crying out with thirst, What's God? God's deliverance is going to be like this. Like what? Well, look at verse 18. I will open rivers in the desolate heights and fountains in the valleys and make a wilderness a pool of water. It's like being thirsty, dying of thirst, and suddenly there's a river of water and there's a pool in the desert. And that's what God's going to do for his people. Now notice at verse 20 as he finishes that, before we go to verse 21, and that is, that you may see and know and consider the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created. Who brought all of this about? The deliverance from Babylonian captivity when it comes, and that is, it was the, uh, the God of heaven who did that. Now 21 to 29 Here's a challenge to the gods of the nations now. What is the challenge to the gods of the nation? Look at verse 21. God often does this, not only in Isaiah, but in other prophets, God will do this. God will call for the nations or someone, may not be nations, to come and present their case. It's like a court case. So come, you're on trial, and let's have a challenge now, and you come and present your case in the court session. So present your case, verse 21. Notice at verse 23, show the things that are to come hereafter. 
the gods of the nations, you prophesy, let these idols prophesy what's coming in the future. What nation will rise next, and then what nation will take that nation down? Let them prophesy that. Then he concludes at verse 24 that those who have their confidence in these idols are nothing but an abomination. Now God presents his evidence, verses 25 to 29 to finish that chapter. How does God present his evidence? Well, when God comes on the scene to, to respond in this court case, notice what God says, I have raised up one from the north. I thought he was from the east. Well, Persia is from the east. But the Medes were from the north, and when they formed an alliance with the Medes, now we have the Medo-Persian Empire, and so it's said to be from the east and the north as well. That's the idea. But he's talking about Cyrus. So here, look, here, here's a powerful argument. For God being correct in what he says, and it's the same argument we make to our atheist friends, and that is prophecy and fulfillment. Your gods cannot prophesy concerning the future. God is saying, I can prophesy concerning the future. 150 years before it ever happens, I can prophesy what's going to happen. So notice what he says. Notice what he says here at verse, uh, uh, verse 25. I have raised one from the north. That is, he's coming from the north. He's talking about Cyrus. And verse 26, who has declared from the beginning that we may know? In other words, who said all of this? Who prophesied concerning Cyrus rising? Babylon coming in, then Cyrus after that. And he said in verse 27 and 28, I have told you that. Now notice at verse 28, in the court case, it's like he turns back to the idols and asks them, now y'all go ahead and you respond, and they answer not a word. Well, they can't answer a word. And in verse 28, indeed, they're worthless. These idols are worthless. The gods of the nations are not going to help them at all. So there's the challenge. God has prophesied. So when God prophesies and it comes to pass, that's evidence that God indeed is true and God is real. And we'll see more about that as we go along. Now let's get 42 and 43 together. God will take care of his people. God's going to take care of his people, verses 42 and 43. So what do we have in 42 and uh, 43? Well, in these chapters... They're devoted to saying God's going to deliver his people and is talking about a deliverance from Babylonian captivity, again, laced with a messianic message. So let's see what we have. Verses 1 to 9 is messianic. If you're noting the messianic prophecies, we're not giving detailed uh, comments on those. We're going to come back and talk about messianic prophecies later. The servant, the Messiah, is going to bring justice to the Jews and to the Gentiles, verses 1 to 9. My servant, the elect one, He's going to bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Um, verse 6, he'll bring light to the Gentiles and open the blind eyes and bring out prisoners. And so here is justice and deliverance that's going to come through the Messiah. Much like we saw in chapter 40, like we've seen in other chapters. And we're going to see even more in chapters 52, 53, and 54 a little bit later. Now beginning at verse 10, we have a new song of praise and thanks for deliverance. Now, what is this thanks and praise for deliverance from? Is it the deliverance of verses 1 to 9 of, through the Messiah? Or is it deliverance from Babylonian captivity? Or could it be a combination of both? It seems in context more to be a deliverance from Babylonian captivity. Um, but be that as it may. Look at verse 13. The Lord shall bring forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. And he shall cry out, yes, cry aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. So what this song is about in verses 10 through 17 is a song about deliverance 
and prevailing over the enemies of God. Look at verse 14. I've held my peace a long time. That's why I think he's talking about deliverance from the Babylonian captivity. I held my peace for a long time. And then God finally says, I'm going to lay waste the mountains. Verse 5, I will uh, dry up their vegetations and I will make the rivers a coastland. And verse 17, I'll turn them back and they'll be greatly shamed who trusted in their carved images. So I'm going to turn Babylon back. I'm going to make Babylon uh, a nothing but a wasteland is what he's going to do. Now, verses 42 through uh, 18 through 25, God's people were punished because of their disobedience. Why did they go into Babylonian captivity anyway? This is not the last time you'll talk about this. Notice at verse 18, Hear you deaf, you blind, who is blind to my servant. Look at verse 20. Seeing many things you do not observe, and opening the ears you don't hear. In other words, they're hearing, but they didn't pay attention. They heard the message of God, but they ignored the message of God. That's basically quoted in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 13. Let's drop down to verse 24. Who gave Jacob plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord? Who allowed this to happen to Judah, to go off into Babylonian captivity? Who allowed that to happen? Well, he said it was the Lord, and here's why. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. Against whom we have sinned, for they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. So why did they go into Babylonian captivity in the first place? Well, it was because uh, they were disobedient to his law. Now let's get chapter 43 in that. This is still a part of the Lord's going to take care of his people. He's going to deliver his people. So he says, Israel is God's chosen in verses 1 to 7, and God's going to gather his people. Now this, he said, I formed you, verse 1, and I have redeemed you, and you are mine, verse 1. And now in verses 2 and 3, his point is, I'll not forget you, when you pass through the river or the fire of captivity. So in their captivity, it's like you're going through a river, like you're going through a fire. I'm not going to forget you in the middle of that. I'm going to call my people together. I'm going to deliver my people. And so he said, I'm going to call them from verse 5, the east, and from the uh, west, and verse 6, from the north, and from the south. I'm going to gather my people back together, bringing them back from captivity. Now notice beginning at verse 8. Verse 8, point uh, 2 here that God's plan for his people is going to serve as a witness. Now let's see how that works. Look at verses 8 through 13. God's plan for his people is going to serve as a witness. In other words, notice what he says at verse, uh, verse 8. Let all the nations be gathered together. And he said, you are my witness, verse 10. Look at verse, thir uh, verse 12. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord. And then at verse 13, we'll come back to the witness in a moment. He says, I have said it and I can't reverse it. In other words, when I said I'm going to deliver my people, they're going to be delivered. And uh, uh, that's going to happen and that is never going to be changed. Now, what do you mean by the witness? In other words, he calls for the nations to come together and witness what God's going to do for his people. And when God says he'll deliver his people and he does deliver his people, their deliverance from Babylonian captivity. Particularly when it's in the time of Cyrus, who's going to be identified later in the very next chapter is witness that indeed God is true and his word is true and he knows what he's doing. And that's the point that he's being made here in this context. Well, now let's go further now. Let's go to uh, chapter, uh, let's, let, let's go back, back to verse 14 and 15 now. Uh, skip verse 14 and 15. Look at verse 14 and 15 now. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans down. That's a Babylon. Babylon and the Chaldeans are one and the same people. That he said, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. In other words, I'm going to bring Babylon down. 
I'm going to bring Babylon down to the ground. Now, beginning at verse 16 through 21, God's going to do what seems to be impossible. Here's a very practical lesson for us. God's going to do what seems to be impossible here. What does it mean, impossible? Well, look at verse 16. That God had made a way through the sea and the path through the mighty waters. What is he talking about? When they came out of Egypt and they come to the river, that looks like it's impossible to cross through the river. But what did God do? God opened up the sea and they crossed through. So God was able to do what seems to be impossible. So now he says at verse 18, do not remember the former things, now consider, nor consider the things of old. Well, he just reminded them of the things of old. So what does he mean? What he means is don't focus on the past, get your focus on the future. Now what? Look at verse 19, behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it? What's he talking about? That's deliverance from Babylonian captivity, which seems just as impossible as crossing the Red Sea. Now, if God could deliver you through the Red Sea, then God can deliver Israel and Judah from Babylonian captivity. God can and will do what seems to be impossible. Now then, he says here, it, deliverance is promised in spite of Israel's history of sin. So let's begin now at verse 22. He said, I've called you. Ah. Uh, but or, or, you have not called upon me. Look at verse 22. You have not called upon me, O Jacob. Now, why did they go into captivity? Well, he said, you've not brought me your sheep for your burnt offerings. Verse 23, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. Nor have you caused, uh, nor have you called, uh, have, uh, I have not caused you to serve with the, the, uh, the grain offerings. What's he talking about? Well, there's some question among commentators what he's talking about. Some think that they've grown indifferent in their service to the Lord. Others think that they did not faithfully offer sacrifices while in Babylon. Haley thinks that what they're talk, what's talking about, what he, uh, the prophet is talking about here, is that they may still have been offering their sacrifice, but it was not with a whole heart. Any way you look at it, they were not worshiping God as they should. They were not honoring God as they should. And so verse 24, God said he had grown weary of them and their iniquities. So that's why I'm going to deliver you in spite of the fact that you have a history of sin. Now, he's going to say more about that in a moment. So let's go now to chapter 44. Israel should not fear because the one true God promises to deliver them. They should not fear because the one true God promises to deliver them. What does he say in chapter 44? Well, God's people have no reason to fear because God's going to bless them. How so? Well, he's going to give water. Look at verse 3 to the thirsty. Floods to the dry land and pour out his blessings and his spirit upon people. In other words, I'm going to richly bless my people, verses 1 to 5. And people then consequently say, I am the Lord's, verse 5. Now notice beginning at verse 6. Verses 6 through 20, there is none beside the one true God. Now this is a powerful point, get the point. Beginning at verse 20, there is none beside God. Look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, he said, I am the first, I am the last. There is none, there is no other God. And who can proclaim as I do? What God is there that can foretell the future like I can? Again, he goes to prophecy and fulfillment as evidence of his existence. Let him declare it. Let the, let the, the, uh, the God proclaim and tell the future. And let them, look at the end of verse 7, let them show these to them. Let them show what prophecies they have made. Now notice how worthless their idols are, beginning at verse 9, verses 9 through, through the rest of, through that section, verse 20. 
They're useless, verse 9. They've made a, gold, a, craven, a, a graven image and they're useless. They neither see nor know. They, the idol can't see anything. The idol doesn't know anything. Made of wood or gold or, or silver, as the case may be. They're made by mere men, verse 11. And notice now at verse 13, beginning. Verse 13 describes a man going to the forest and he cuts a tree. And from that tree, what he does is he, he takes part of that and he measures it, marks it out, and he makes him an idol. And then he takes part of that same tree, same wood, and what he does, look at verse 15, he says, with some of that he'll warm himself and he kindles it and he bakes bread. He uses the same tree and he, he makes a fire and he cooks, cooks his meal. He uses some of the wood from that same tree and he has a fire to warm himself. And from that same tree, he takes a piece of wood and he makes him an idol. And how absurd that is, he says. And how foolish that is. Now, notice beginning at verse 18, he simply says they're blind and they're foolish. They have no, they have no sense at all if they follow that kind of nonsense. Now, beginning at verse 21 to 28, God's not going to forget his people. What he's reminding them, that the, the, the Babylonians, which had their idol gods, have no power at all. God has power over the Babylonians as well as he has all other nations. Now look at verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Verse 21. God said, I won't forget you. I'm not going to forget you at all. Uh, I am with your people. Now beginning at verse 24. Verse 24 through verse, about verse 27. I won't go through the details, but it's a reminder of what God, who God is and what he's done. How he stretched out and created the heavens Look at all that God's done. That's a reminder, and that's your assurance that God hasn't forgotten you. Now then, if you're so disposed to mark things, you want to mark verse 28, because this is the first time this has been mentioned. Who says of Cyrus, calls him by name. Isaiah is prophesying in the 700s, about 740, 700 B.C. Cyrus is not born to 599 B.C. This deliverance will not come to about 536 B.C. So we're about 150 years from the time of the fulfillment thereof, and they not only says Babylon, who's yet to rise in power, is going to fall, but it's going to fall to a specific nation, the Persians. But here is the leader by name that's going to let the people go back. Cyrus is his name, he said. You're talking about prophecy and fulfillment. We'll say more when we get to chapter 25. But Cyrus is his name that's going to deliver his people. Now let's go to chapter 45. Here's the instrument and the effect of Israel's deliverance. What's going to happen? Well, here we go again. Verse 40, chapter 45, verse 1. And that is Cyrus is the instrument that God's going to use to bring about the deliverance from Babylonian captivity. Here we have again, his, uh, Cyrus is mentioned by name. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. Now we'll come back to what God did with him, but hold your finger, let's go back to the book of Ezra just for a moment. Uh, Ezra chapter 1. In the post-exile period, Ezra 1 and in verse 1, now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah being fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus so that he made a proclamation throughout the kingdom. And so here was the proclamation that he's going to let the people go. 
Josephus, the Jewish historian and antiquities of the Jews, states that Cyrus was motivated by reading Isaiah the prophet. You say, well, I, I, you know, Isaiah gets kind of boring, and I'm not really. I won't tell you what, that every Jew was thrilled that somebody read Isaiah, that Cyrus was reading Isaiah. Because upon reading Isaiah 44 and verse 28, which we just covered, Isaiah 45 and verse 1, Cyrus saw his own name there. And that's how God stirs him up. And he was motivated by reading that, according to Josephus, and therefore he was the one that lets them go back. Well, let's, let's see what he said about uh, Cyrus. God said, I held his right hand, verse, verse 1, and that I was the one who guided him and I was before him. In other words, I opened the way for him. I, uh, I was the one guiding him. He was the one that was going to do this. At verse 4, God did this for the sake of Israel. One, for the sake that Cyrus has a name. Why did he do this? For Jacob, my servant's sake, verse 4. Now it will be known there is no other God. Now th this gets to a powerful point. He's been driving it all through this section. There is no other God. Let's see what, the, what he says and then we'll drive the point home. Look at verse 5. He said, I am the Lord and there is no other. No God beside me. Verse 6. That they may know from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun that there's none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Had Judah understood that from the beginning, there never would have been captivity. That's the point. The very point they should have understood from the beginning, had they understood there is no other God but their God, they would have never gone into captivity, but they did. And so now he says, God's way should not be questioned. Look at verse 9. What who him who strives with his maker? And it's like the uh, potsherd uh, of the earth, like the potsherd strives with the potsherds of the earth, or the clay says to the potter, why did you make me? In other words, God's way is not to be questioned at all. God is the one who raises up uh, Cyrus. And God is the one who decides when that's to be done. Look at verse 13. I have raised him up in righteousness. It doesn't mean that Cyrus was a righteous man. He was far from a righteous man. But God's using him as a tool. And I will direct all his ways, speaking of Cyrus, and he shall build my city and let my exiles go free. I remind you, that was stated 150 years before that took place. Spoken ever before Cyrus was ever born. And when it became fulfilled just exactly like God said, that shows that Isaiah the prophet was speaking by inspiration. And so prophecy and fulfillment is a very, very, very strong evidence of inspiration of the scriptures. And God himself argues from that all through. Uh, the context. Now let's begin at verse uh, 14 now and go through verse 25 of chapter 45. Israel's deliverance is going to cause the Gentiles to turn to God. Israel's deliverance is going to cause the Gentiles to turn to God. He mentions three nations here. And I think that it simply means they're going to come and ally with Israel. That is Egypt and Cush, that's Ethiopia. And the Sabaeans, that's upper Egypt, are going to identify with Egypt. They're going to make an alliance with, with Israel, that is. And they're going to be, uh, Israel is going to be delivered with an everlasting uh, salvation, verses 15 to 19. I think that again is probably talking about deliverance from Babylonian captivity and probably not messianic, though it could be. Verses 20 to 25, the Gentiles are going to ultimately see there is no other God. And that carries us through the end of chapter, chapter 45. Now, I want to make a note here uh, at verse 
verse 23. This is quoted in the New Testament, by the way, Romans 14 and verse 11, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath or confess. When man comes to finally recognize and acknowledge God, it's going to be ultimately too late. Now let's talk about the God in contrast to the Babylonian idols. In verses 1 to 7, we're just going to quickly summarize the rest of these chapters because we got to the heart of how Babylon is going to fall, but we'll, we'll get the gist of chapter 46. What happens in chapter 46? Well, it talks about the Babylonian gods. In verses 1 to 7, he talks about the difference in a god who carries man, that is the god of heaven, and the man who carries his god. It's a big difference in that. And he bears it on his shoulders, verse 7, and it can't save him at all. The beginning at verse 8 through verse 13, God's going to do what he promises. And so he said, I'm the, I am the God, and I said it from the beginning. Look at verse 11. Calling the bird of prey from the east. That's Cyrus again. He's called the bird of prey. And he refers to Israel as being stubborn. I'm going to do what I said. I, I'll call the bird of prey from the east, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to call. And so Babylon idols uh, uh, cannot uh, do anything. Now, Babylon's going to be brought down here. Now, there's a, a great deal in chapter 47, but we're just going to, again, hit the high points. Again, this is 150 years before it takes place. Babylon is going to fall, but Babylon is going to be brought to shame. Notice the descriptions of the shame upon Babylon. And that is, he says, uh, O virgin daughter of Babylon, which suggests she hasn't been defiled. But God's going to defile her. How's he going? Well, he's going to embarrass her. How so? Look at verse 2. He said, remove the veil, take up the skirt, uncover the thigh, and your nakedness will be uncovered. God's going to expose her nakedness. And she's going to be shamed. And he's going to bring Babylon down. Now, in verse 4, the Lord is going to accomplish that. Look at verse uh, 8. She's going to face widowhood. She had set and said, I shall not be a widow. In other words, I'm not going to be defeated. But not only are you going to be defeated, you're going to be widowless and childless. God's going to bring Babylon down. That's the idea. Babylon no longer is going to be the lady of the kingdom, verses 5 to 7. The powerful leader, the, the ultimate power. God's going to bring Babylon indeed down. Now I want you to drop down to uh, verses 12 to 15. The point here is that the pagan practices are not going to help them to... Uh, to uh, to, to be delivered. That is, Babylon can, can turn to their astrologers and their, their stargazers and their counselors, and they're not going to be delivered by their false gods and by their false religion. Their pride, indeed, is going to bring them down. Now, here's chapter 48 to finish the chapter, or finish this section. And that is, Israel's need needs for deliverance was brought up on herself. Here's the point of chapter 48. Why did Israel go into captivity, of Judah go into captivity in the first place? It was because, chapter 48, their disobedience. Um, verses one and two. Is verses one and two. Israel called upon God, but not in truth. In other words, it wasn't from a whole heart. They um, they were obstinate. Verse four. Their neck was like an iron, made like it's made of metal. In other words, they were stiff necked. And um, so on and on through the chapter, he talks about how that they. Uh, they were transgressors from the womb for a long time. But look at verse 10. God said, I'm going to refine you like silver. What's going to happen to Israel is that uh, you're going to be refined, but you're not going to be completely cut off. God plans to overthrow Babylon, verses 12 to 16. But then God's going to deliver Israel 
though it should never have been necessary in the first place. That's the point as he ends upon, that there that should never have been in, in the first place. Uh, look at verse 18 to finish. Chapter 48. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. If you'd just listened to me, you'd have never gone into Babylonian captivity in the first place. It never would have happened. So what, what do we learn from this section? Isaiah chapters 40 to 48. It's deliverance from Babylonian captivity. That's the main thrust in the chapter, chapters 48 to 50, deliverance from Babylonian captivity. But there's a few basic things that we learn from this. We learn God's mercy on his people. These are the very people that had turned their back on God, and yet God was very merciful to them. God will be merciful to us. Well, I also learned there will be a remnant. There always was. There always has been. There always will be a remnant. God has always promised a remnant. Daniel 2, 44. And here's a remnant. Those that came back is not, the, not the, the same people. It's a smaller portion that comes back. And so God has a remnant that he brings back. And I learned that God keeps his promises. He said that they would go into captivity and they did. He said they'd come out and they did. He said he'd restore them and he, and he did. But here's one of the greatest things I learned from this. Prophecy and fulfillment is evidence of inspiration. Long before something ever took place, God said it would happen, said exactly how it would happen. And then it was fulfilled just exactly like the prophet said. And that's evidence that indeed the prophet was speaking by inspiration. We'll finish the book of Isaiah next week as we go from chapters 49 through 66. It'll be more chapters, but we're going to have to be briefer and, and scrunch those in. But we'll get through the rest of the book. There may be one more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism? for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come? All together we stand and sing.